0: We are going to continue this morning in Corinthians in chapter 5, and this is one of the things about doing a series on, in a book through the whole summer, because you uh, have to deal with all of the passages and all of the chapters in some sense. We are skipping a couple, but you have to deal with 1 Corinthians 5. As Grant was halfway through reading it, Anna leaned over to me and said, quite the passage to have to preach this morning. Uh, And that it is, it is quite the passage. Um, But let's remind you guys and myself a little bit here in this moment of what the flow is and what is happening in Corinthians, sort of big picture, what Paul is doing. Paul is taking problems that he sees in the, the church at Corinth and he's identifying them and he's presenting it to him and kind of saying like, look, this is why this is a problem. This is the problem that exists. This is the problem that is going on with you guys. And this is like, this is not good, right? And he's kind of laying it out for them. Then he does the second thing where he responds with the gospel or essentially says, this is what the, the response that we should have towards this problem because of the gospel. And then he oftentimes will make a third step and he'll sort of say like, in light of resurrection, we need to continue to live in this way. And honestly, it's a really good approach to look at most things, whether you have a problem with someone or a problem in front of you or whatever it may be. This is a good way of sort of processing your life before Jesus. What is the issue at hand? How do we understand it? How should we understand it and process it in light of the gospel and then like in light of resurrection and the fact that we understand that we are a new being in Christ. How then should I live my life in accordance with the realities and the truth of the gospel? And so this is what Paul's doing. Now, it's not perfect. Our chapter breaks aren't, like, you know, right on the money. There's oftentimes interpretive issues with, like, why does that break on that verse? Genesis 1 and 2, like, why does it break it there? Like, it should keep going for three more verses and then start a new setting. But they chose to break the chapters that way. Whatever. Greek does the same thing. Lots of like interpretive problems. There's not an interpretive problem here. It's just the way they break it, but it doesn't flow perfectly in the way you want it to. So keep that in mind. But it's pretty close and it's pretty tight. What we were doing in chapters one through four, we were addressing the issue of unity and division. There, there was division among the Corinthians. Is the problem? The response. Or in light of the gospel, there should be unity. If you're living life according to the gospel, you shouldn't be divided. You should be unified. And in light of resurrection, in chapters 1 through 4, what Paul is laying out is a different way of like leadership and authority. That's what he got in chapter 4 last week that Kyle preached. So the problem was division. The gospel calls us to unity. In light of the resurrection, we should rethink leadership to, would allow for unity and structure in the way that the gospel would call us to. Section 1. Now we're going to move to sexual immorality, and the same pattern is going to follow. So today, in our chapter, you're going to get a little bit of all three, but we're mostly going to address the problem, and then throughout the next few chapters, we will address like more specifically the gospel and the result of resurrection. So we're identifying the issue The place and the reason for what is going on. And so he's identifying sexual integrity. And what Paul is going to lay out in the next few chapters of Corinthians is that there is a reason that you, a follower of Jesus, should have a certain sexual integrity about yourself. A certain way of living, existing, and being in light of the gospel. In light of what we know to be true. Because there's this continuing theme throughout the letter that we are reading to the church at Corinth. That I think is also a continuing theme that I want to hold up throughout the entirety of our series. And that is that there is this idea throughout that we are seeing Jesus in the good news of the gospel as an announcement into a new way of living and existing. That is the, there's a slide for this. The gospel is an announcement about Jesus who is opening up a whole new reality. And this is going to tie all of the problems and all of the arguments together. Like, if you get one thing out of Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, whatever you want to call it, this is the idea. That in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus is to understand that that is not just a theological or mental assent. It is not some clever, clever, philosophical idea to help order and structure your life to be a better you in and of itself, though those things do happen and that should happen. To understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to step into a whole new reality, to leave behind the old way of being and to become a new creation and to understand that this is a new reality and a completely new way of existing and functioning in the world around you. Not some clever idea that will help you over here in your worldly way be a better you. And that's what we addressed at the very beginning. Is He was like, hey, 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 you guys are doing, like, it's good that you're following Jesus. But there's still too much, like, Corinth in you. There's still too much cultural way of thinking and functioning. You have to reimagine how it is that you function and operate in the world. And so he transitions from where Kyle was last week and on leadership and on unity into this idea of sexual immorality. So the response that we're seeing is that Paul is saying like, you need to listen to this, okay? There is a place and a time where we actually do have to call one another out. If you remember Kyle's sermon last week, he talked a lot about this, uh, like there's a new way of leading, and Paul is uh, very humble in chapter four, or at least he's advocating for humility. And he's kind of saying, like, listen, like, it's not about being the boisterous, loud person up front. It's not about being the charismatic person. And if I were willing to wager a survey of this room, most of us being a product of our education and of our culture would be like, well, yeah, obviously, most of you in this room, if I'm willing to wager, and this is Kyle jokes about this, right? Like we pastors, we like put questions in your mind and thoughts in your mind. And if you're like, no, that's not me, then let us know. But I have a feeling most of us bristle a little bit of any heavy-handedness or authoritative rule. It's a tiny bit. Uh, and then it's normal of all humans to do it. But I think societally and culturally even more so. And then if you're like my personality, like. You're doubly like, just going to be like, oh, you want me to? Well, I can't do it now because somebody told me to, so now I just can't, and now I have that in my child, and it's miserable, and I'm sorry, Mom, um, <laughs> because like, it's just not fun. But like, culturally and societally speaking, we are very like resistant towards like, any kind of hierarchy, any kind of authority figures, like, and it's because, rightfully so, we've seen it really abused especially in the church, that we, like, it it rubs us the wrong way because we've seen how in the church authority and spiritual authority and places of authority and power have been given, and it's just been abused. And we have to acknowledge that. It's really hard. It's really difficult. And outside of the church, right? Like, I mean, this ripped through Hollywood. Like, this is not a problem unique to the church, so if you're, like, hand-wringing and thinking, like, the church is a terrible place and only the church is sinful, like... Just at least here we name it and we have an explanation for it, but like this is happening everywhere. CEOs, we're seeing the abuse. Politicians, we're seeing the abuse. And in a social media age, all of it, we're able to like come in contact with it more. And thankfully, people are feeling confident and they feel like they have the platforms and the places to express that abuse and to get out from underneath it. And we want to champion that. That is never what we would advocate for is to stay in those situations or to stay in those structures that allow that to happen. And so what we see or what we feel a lot of times is like a a pushback to structure or to hierarchy or to any kind of confrontation or authority. We like saying with Paul, only God can judge me. Like, you can't judge me. Like, we really like saying that. And I think most of us last week in the sermon are like, yes, like, this is what it's about. But then, like, we're really confused with why Paul comes swinging out of the gate in chapter 5, right? Like, Paul, you just said no one can judge you, and now you're going to come out and say, I have already judged him, and I'm not even there, and I barely even know him. That should feel a little bit like, wait, what just happened? It should feel a little incongruent. But what we need to understand is what Paul was doing in chapter 4 is he was not advocating for, like, zero hierarchy or structure or authority or anything like that. He was saying that the person that does that needs to first themselves be centered on and judged by Christ, and Christ alone. And as that person does so, as Paul will say repeatedly, as I imitate Christ, as I have been judged by him and present myself in humility, as I present myself as a servant to you, as I present myself as one that longs for your well-being, that has proven myself over and over again to be here for your good, and that I'm willing to sacrifice myself in the same way that Christ has sacrificed himself, I'll then like gain some sort of relational equity over here that allows me then in my wisdom and in the calling and place that Christ has put him in to speak into these places and to make confrontation. To look at someone and say, listen, there has to be something done here. You cannot just allow this behavior to go on because it's not good for that person. It does no good for them. No one feels, well maybe you do feel a little bit like this uh, depending on your situation, but most of the time no one feels judged or called out or like a doctor is being heavy handed when they look at you and say there is a problem here and we have to fix it or you are going to die. Or you are going to experience immense pain in your life. Or you are going to constantly like, deal with this like, whatever it is that is ailing you. Unless we fix it. And in some ways, I think that that's more what Paul is doing here. Is he's looking at this church and he's saying, I love you. I have proven that to you. I have served you. I have cared for you. I'm a part of you. This language that he's using here in chapter 5 about like, I'm with you in spirit. That's not, like, some charismatic way of, like, oh, we're all united in the bond of Christ, though that is also true. It is not some, like, mystical thing where Paul has ascended the ability to, like, sit and quietly detach himself and, like, spiritually show up like Yoda or something, like, back in time. I don't know. I'm trying to make stuff up here. Uh, But, like, there's this thing, there's this moment where we can maybe think, like, there's something weird going on here. In first century Judaism, when they were writing letters to one another when you said to someone you were with them in spirit, it was kind of like the way you would talk about your family, like that you're so relationally connected and tied that like though I am not there like physically, like I'm there with you. My thoughts, my way of existing, my love for you, like it shapes and forms you. If you've ever had a holiday without a parent, like in some way your parent is still there with you in spirit, not like because they're sending positive vibes your way, But because like the way you approach that holiday, like you're shaped and formed and you know the way your parents would like lay that out. They're with you because they're so tied to you. It's a familial language. It's relational language. It's saying like they are connected. They know one another and they know what Paul would be thinking. They know how Paul would respond to these things. He's saying, so you know who I am. I am with you in spirit. Trust me on this. When I point this out, I'm not doing it because I want to come down heavy-handed. I'm not doing it because like, I take great joy into belittling someone. That's not his intent. His intent is to approach them in love and in kindness. And so we have two problems, really, in chapter 5 that he's addressing. The most obvious one is sexual uh, integrity or sexual immorality. And that is the theme that is going to continue over the next few chapters. That problem is coupled with the congregation or the church of Corinth like sort of accepting the se- sexual immorality. And there's this twofold like sort of tension that's going on through there that Paul is addressing in chapter 5. So first, let's talk about the problem of sexual immorality. It's a man sleeping with his stepmother or mother in- or not mother-in-law. Uh, I forget what the exact passage that we read this morning, how it named it, but it's, it's his hus- husband's, his father's wife. Thank you. I kept saying father's husband. His father's wife is how it was phrased. It's his stepmom. So, most likely, this is maybe a second marriage, or still at this point in time, it wasn't uncommon for people in the culture to have multiple wives. And so, he's doing something that Paul wants to make clear. It's like, just like, this is not okay. I think all of us would generally agree with that. That it's probably not a good idea to sleep with your father's wife, uh, even if you're not blood-related. Like, that doesn't make it okay. Now, there's two things that could be happening here. It could be as scandalous as a telenovela, and they could be living in the same house with one another. Or it could be that his stepmom and his dad have parted ways and that they're actually married. And there's good kind of guessings at both, but it's mostly all conjecture. One of the reasons that the scholars will t- try to articulate or debate that maybe they're married with one another is that they think maybe the problem, big maybe here, that maybe the problem going on here was that the church at Corinth was okay with this guy because he had a lot of money, he had a lot of like, uh, uh, clout or, or uh, reputation in the, cult- or in the community. And so they didn't want to confront his sin. And if that's true, like, that would have been maybe been more true if he had remarried this woman and like, he probably got some money from her and, and this would make that kind of like, make more sense. But it's not a huge deal. I just thought it was interesting that, who knows, it's fun to find out background stories. So, he is sleeping with his stepmom, not a good idea. Paul says, not only is it not a good idea as a Christian, Like this is a bad idea, even if you're a pagan. Like, so what we know from uh, historical context and other letters is that the people of Corinth are actually talking about this. Like, non-believers are pointing at this church and saying, "Like, this is a problem, and you guys like are ignoring it." I feel like that that happens sometimes, even now. It's one of the reasons we did the conversation on race last summer. Is there are a lot of people outside of the church saying, "Like, hey, church." Uh, people that call yourself Christians, like you guys have a problem in your midst and the, you're not addressing it. This is a situation where the church was behind the ball on like culture and they were being called out by the culture. And that is a problem. And Paul wants to say, listen, you cannot be complacent on this. You cannot allow this to go on within your midst. Because you are damaging the witness of the gospel by allowing this person to live this way. Now he's later going to address sexual ethics and uh, sexual morality that goes beyond maybe where they would begin to disagree with culture. But he's like starting here. He's like, this one is bad. And yet you're allowing it to happen. Because the second problem that he is addressing in chapter 5 is the acceptance of this man's sin. Now, I hinted at some of this already, and that is that they probably were accepting this because maybe the man had money. Maybe he was providing something. There's good reasons to believe that that is the case. Or maybe they were accepting it, as Paul hints at, because they also were just really proud of the fact that they were a really accepting community. They prided themselves on the freedom that they had in the gospel, and that they extended that freedom. Look how kind and loving and accepting we are of anyone and everyone, and wherever you find yourself. N.T. Wright says, we see this in our modern culture, on his uh, commentary on Corinth. He said, the Western church is just as guilty of this. We tout... Our acceptance of sin as though it's supposed to be something we should be proud of, when in fact it's destroying us from within in the same way that it is in the the church at Corinth. We find ourselves in these moments and in these places being proud of how accepting we are, how loving we are, and the reality is, is that we're not actually living to the way of Jesus. And that it's because confronting people is really hard. Looking people in the eye and saying, hey, I love you, I care for you, but, like, you're wrong on this. And, and from what we understand about Scripture, it's really difficult. Now, you'll notice this here, okay? Paul is not doing this left and right. Paul is not doing this willy-nilly. And some of you are uh, bristling now because you've been in churches where we name everything wrong. And, and we, like, are constantly doing this. This is really big issues. Like, Paul's written lots of letters, he's done lots of things, and he's pointing it out to everyone. Or, like, he's not pointing it out to everyone. Like, this is an isolated issue. There's a handful of these things that pop up. Like, you're not just, like, slamming church discipline down every, like, Sunday and calling people out and, like, being, like, you know, finger-pointing and wagging to everyone. Like, these are big deals, and so, like, it happens sometimes. And what we as a church and as a community and as people that follow Jesus, we have to be comfortable to look at our brothers and sisters and say, listen, I just don't know if that's congruent with the way of Jesus. I don't know if that's the way that we're supposed to live, and that's really, really difficult. In fact, I would say it's probably the thing that I'm one of the most uncomfortable with as a follower of Jesus If I'm really, really honest, it is definitely one of the things I'm most uncomfortable with about being a pastor. I love being a pastor. I love meeting with you guys. I love hearing your stories. I love talking with each and every one of you. I love preaching because I love talking. I mentioned that twice. You should get a theme here. I love talking to you, and I love talking myself, okay? I love it. I love getting to be up here. I love getting to do what I do. Confronting people and I've had to do it a handful of times, I wish that not on my worst enemy. Like, this is not something we take lightly here at Mosaic. It is not something that we're just like, oh, yeah, that's fun to do. Now, maybe some of you Enneagram 8s, you're like, let me at them, man. I'll tell them that they're wrong, and it'll be a joy of my life. Uh, But most people, and I think anyone that follows Christ seriously would say with Paul, it is with, like, heavy hearts that you have to find yourself in these moments. And I would never take someone that you know loves Jesus and is following them well that comes to you and confronts you. Like I would never take that lightly because there's a lot of pain and anguish as someone that has had to be in that place. You've ever had to stare your friend in the eye and confront them on something. It's heavy and I, being a people pleaser, will stay up all night the night before and probably the whole night after just second guessing every syllable that I used and the inflection that I used. It's not something you want to take lightly, but I do think that if we are to take the gospel serious, it is something that we do need to practice with one another from time to time. That we would take serious that there is authority in Scripture and in structures and in the church and in the community. And that there is a place and a way that we ask one another to be more than what we see them being. When we were uh, doing stuff with the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality class and and studying for Lent, I was reading some various books on these different topics. And this one girl uh, was telling a story And she was saying that she was asked by someone if they had ever experienced the love of Jesus in another human being. And it was her turn to go to the table, and she asked if she could wait, if she could go last. And she said everybody around the table was telling these, like, really churchy stories and these, like, kind of big ideas. Oh, yeah, like this one person that came to visit me in the hospital, and that's the way that I just experienced the love of Jesus, And after everybody went around, the girl, it's her turn and she said, it took me a minute to to tell the story because I had to think about somebody that loved me so much that I wanted to kill him. Because that's the way you're loved by Jesus. Jesus has this way of looking at you and this recently happened to me and it was joyous and heartwarming and yet very confronting where someone looked at me and said, I love you and I see so much more in you and you have fallen short of it. You're capable of more. You're capable of being more in what Christ has called you to be. And Paul is saying, we, if we want to develop into the people that Christ is calling us to be, if we want to step into this new reality at times, we are not confronting for condemnation's sake. We're looking at people and we're saying, in the reality and hope of the resurrection life, there is more available for you. You are meant to be more. You are meant to experience joy, peace, hope, patience, kindness, love. You are meant to have these as realities of your life and the way you are living and what you are doing is not congruent with that way of existence. And it's difficult, but it is joyous and it is life-giving to receive that when you actually get it. It hurts. It's sad. You might mourn it. You might struggle with it, and yet we know that we have to find ourselves doing these things. This is the response of the gospel. It's a call to life. It's a call to to step into more of the reality of what Jesus would do because it's a difficult way to walk away from it. And so we as a community have to learn how to do this because as Eugene Peterson says in the message, yes these moments will be totally devastating for the individual. Yes, It will be embarrassing to you, but better to have difficulty and devastation and embarrassment than damnation. Better to be embarrassed and devastated than to be damned. Do we really think that's true? I know at times, I don't know if I do, because I hate being embarrassed. It's probably like the number one thing, like... I have these memories as a child of when I saw my parents or my siblings embarrassed. I don't know why I have these memories, but I do. Like these embarrassing moments for my mom. I can think of one right now specifically in my head. My dad, my sisters. Like I have very specific memories where they were embarrassed. And that feeling and that like, oh, that sticks with me today. Like 25 years later, I can still smell the pool water when my mom swam in the wrong direction. And I was like, why am I embarrassed by that? But like I just was. Being embarrassed is like my greatest fear. Better to be embarrassed than to be damned. This goes back to what we I preached two weeks ago. Better to be a fool, to make yourself a fool for the gospel, than to be damned and to live a life outside of the way of the kingdom. It can be harsh language. I think Paul can be a little harsh from time to time. Let this be a mental flip on you, though. Kyle and I were laughing about this. The Corinthians' critique of Paul was that he was not harsh or strong or heavy-handed enough. And we're like, oh, man, Paul, we got to kind of, like, make some excuses for him. You're talking to a non-believer, and you're like, I know Paul's a little bit of a misogynist from time to time. It'll be okay. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in these conversations. But it's hard sometimes. You're like, that language, we got to understand it in a different kind of way. And the Corinthians are like, we need more of a man. And Paul's like, no, that's not the way a leader's supposed to be. I'm like, what kind of leader were they looking for? <laughs> so he can feel heavy-handed to us. And then he goes on to say, like, here's how you should respond to this, okay? Not just confront them. Not just talk to them. Not just give them issues or, or, or response to this. But he looked at them and he says, turn them over to Satan. And everybody goes, what? Come again? Just hand him to who? That guy? Satan? Okay, so he wants you to turn him over to Satan. But here's what he's getting at. One, this is language that gets uh, adopted in Jewish culture as a an excommunication, this language, this act, this, this thing that he's doing sending someone out from the community. It was their way of grappling with Old Testament law that said to stone those people instead. So they've made progress in our uh, enlightened minds here in the 21st century. We're like, okay, well, I guess excommunication is better than stoning someone outside the city walls. Uh, Good job. Still seems a little weird to us, but he's got a deeper point and something that I think we need to hold to is he doesn't just say, turn him over and like run him out. He says two things. He says, turn him over do so in order that they might be saved. What he's hoping, what he's praying for, is that the person reckoning with the consequences of their actions, which we are fools to think that there are not consequences to actions, that the person reckoning with those consequences would be so overwhelmed and overcome by it that they would turn back to the grace and the kindness of the gospel. So he does not see the grace and the kindness of the gospel incongruent with turning someone over and excommunicating them. Second thing he wants to make very clear that I think is worth making clear here. He is not saying to do that to all people that are immoral. I've chuckled when Grant read it, and I've chuckled every time I've read it, because it's just funny to me. He's like, I just imagine Paul, somebody asking him a question. Like, so we're not supposed to uh, interact with sinners? And he's like, what are you going to do, die? Like, not exist? <laughs> like, everywhere you go, you're going to deal with immoral people swindlers, idolaters. And in fact, he's saying, if they're outside of the kingdom of God, go be friends with them. Teach them about the way of the kingdom. What he's addressing here is something specific, and I think it's something culturally in the church we've missed for a long time. I think here in this room we probably do a better job of it, and there are lots of movements that are doing a better job of this. But for a long time, we wanted to throw these giant stones at the sins outside of the church. And we still hear stories of this going on. We wanna like, just mock people, s- slam them, tear them down. And in fact, we don't even wanna advocate for their humanity, for their good, their well-being, because we're like, well, they don't believe what I believe, so like they shouldn't be allowed to do these things. We see this with freedom of religion all the time. The Christian church is some of the worst people that stand for the freedom of religion because what a lot of people in the conservative church want is just freedom of Christianity, and that's not freedom of religion. And so what they do is they want to tear down all of these other people when we as the church would be saying, no, 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 those are human beings with beliefs and with hearts and minds that are pursuing truth and we should advocate that they should be free to pursue that truth. Now, if that person wants to walk inside of these walls and come to me as a pastor and say, what is it like to pursue Jesus? Then I have a different conversation with them. But it's not my place to stand here and judge someone that doesn't want to follow Jesus. I'm not to excommunicate someone that is outside of this, like what I think is the way of the kingdom, until they come to, and even then I probably wouldn't, until they came to Mosaic and said, hey, I want to be a part of your church, I want to do this thing, and then I'd say, okay, let's have some conversations about what we think it looks like to follow Jesus here as a community. And then, it's not like an immediate, well, if you don't tick all of these boxes, you're out and you're excommunicated. Paul knows this guy. He walks with him. He walks with this community. He's been intimately involved with them. And this guy is unwilling to repent. Because he even says, if he repents, then cool. Keep him in the community. Like, he gives him a chance. But he says, like, if he doesn't, then you like, you got to walk away. Because you as believers, like, you can't be associated with people that are trying to follow Jesus that are unwilling to live the way that Jesus has called you to live not saying don't associate with people that aren't following the way of Jesus. Don't don't allow people that think they are following Jesus and claiming to follow Jesus, but not living up with it. That's a different story. But even then, very hesitant. And good news here, folks. 2 Corinthians 2 verses 5 through 11. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. Punishment inflicted on him by the majority isn't efficient. Now instead, forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you is to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I will forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ. In order that Satan, who previously was being handed people in the church, would not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. The person Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians is our very character in 1 Corinthians 5. The man was handed over to Satan, and then Paul, and later we see this man was actually restored and brought back. There's something to this is what what we should be getting at. This thing that Paul was doing, it matters because it it allows people to be restored to the kingdom, to be restored to the way of Jesus. And so this judgment is a mercy, it's a kindness. And we do have to step into it sometimes, and we do, as Kyle was saying, have to understand that we are constrained to something. We cannot stand with the Corinthians and just be like, well, the gospel says I'm free, so I'm free to do whatever I want. We have to understand that these aren't always issues of morality and ethics, which is something that I think I completely misunderstood growing up in the church. Like, like, you can be a good person and not necessarily always be doing the things the way that Jesus has called us to. This is a unique thing to live into a new reality of the kingdom of God. And what we want to articulate and what we want to push forward as a community here at Mosaic is that, as Paul is saying, we have to be centered on Christ. That this is a movement towards Jesus. It is not a question of right or wrong, can I or can't I? It's a question of does this allow me to progress into more of who I already am in Christ? Kyle used the language a few series back about being a centered set versus a bounded set. And too often the church functions as a bounded set and says you are either in or out because you tick this box or that. But what we are called to as a community is to be a centered set, and that is an open group of people that are moving towards the center, which is Christ. And that's Paul's whole argument in Corinthians. That we are to move towards Christ and the cross, and if someone is moving away from that, It is a kindness to look at that person and invite them to turn around and continue towards the journey of Jesus. And we do so, and we stand in this place because we know that we have resurrected lives. Because of the resurrection, the third part, so the gospel's response is confront the person because the gospel is confrontational, the cross is confrontational, the cross is sacrificial, it is ugly and it is embarrassing. And in light of that, In light of resurrection, because we know the cross isn't the final answer, there's a resurrected way of being. And we are invited into that in a life of the Spirit. And what we know is that what we do with our bodies, it matters. Because they too will be resurrected. What we do with our actions, they matter because this thing continues on. It is not just like done because you said some words this is not some magical incantation that you pronounce and that then, like, you're saved and now you're part of the resurrected life. No, your whole being is brought into this because resurrection is true and it is real. And so, we, being human beings, are naturally sexual. It is inevitable that you, like, would be able to avoid this. It's biology. We are sexed beings. And our sexuality, then, it matters. And how we use it and how we honor the Lord in it, it matters. And there's lots of conversations on that that we are willing to have in a dialogue of how, how do we do that? What does that look like for you and for me? And like, that's an open and ongoing conversation. But what we do know is that our sexuality matters in the way of the kingdom. And there are ethics and there are ways of existing and being that the Lord says this is good and right and following me. And we want to explore that as a community. And we want to continue to guide in that as a community and to process that as a community and to continue on our way to following Jesus because what we know is everything that we do with our bodies matters because it's all being brought into the resurrected life we're not Platonist here we don't think that like, we will ascend out of our bodies by Platonist I mean we don't follow Plato this idea that, we will, that there's this like, spiritual realm that you can ascend to and the material's all terrible and there's a platonic form that we're trying to achieve and we'll just sort of like, exit out of our bodies and follow that What we believe as followers of Jesus is that, like, our body is a part of the redemption and that it's all mingled and tied up together. And so what we do with our bodies matters. There's also really good news in that that is the kindness of the gospel. That matters and that can feel like, oh my gosh, I can't mess anything up. But we also know that God is good to not allow anything to be wasted. Okay. The pain and the suffering that you feel in your body, the pain and the suffering that you might encounter here, the Lord is good to say the mistakes that you made, the mistakes and the sin that has been done to you wherever you find yourself in this conversation, the things that have been forced upon you or that you have forced upon others, like whatever it is, the Lord will say to you that that is not wasted and he is good to take really broken, messed up, and like just misaligned things and to make them beautiful again. Because that is the hope and the goodness of the resurrection of the gospel. That it all matters and that it will all be redeemed. And that you and I are being redeemed in this resurrection life as the Spirit of God fills us and moves and acts in us as individuals and a community. And so there's great mercy and hope in the gospel. So this is not just a heavy-handed do this because this is the way you're supposed to function. It is to say, no, this is the way you're supposed to function because everything that is will be redeemed in Jesus. And that's what we celebrate at communion. So as the band comes up, we're going to take a moment to receive the bread and the cup. What we know is that before we're called to any way of being or existing, before we're told to set out on a certain way is that we, like everyone else, were the one that Christ came to seek after, to restore back. That before we did anything that was worth saving, Christ came to save us. And he redeemed us in his death on the cross. And then he was gracious enough in that redemption to invite us into the resurrection life that he himself experiences now and forevermore and so we take the bread and we recognize and we remember that this was christ's body broken for us for our provision and our sustenance and we eat we take the cup that was the blood of jesus poured out for the forgiveness of our sins and we drink We do all of this in remembrance of Jesus and what he has invited us into and what he has opened up for us. And so, as the band plays, they're going to do two more songs. And what I want to do is, I just want to take this chance and this opportunity to invite you to respond. Where you're se- seated, if you want to stand, in fact, I'll encourage you to stand and to worship. Um, but if you need to sit and reflect, sit and reflect. If you want to pray with someone, I would encourage you to come back in this corner. I'll be back here. I would love to pray with you, Uh, especially if you are struggling with the idea of what it means that the Lord would be gracious and kind to you to redeem your brokenness, that he could take what has been maligned and make it good and beautiful again. I would love to pray that over you. If you struggle with guilt, uh, uh, frustration with what it means to walk in the way of Jesus, let us celebrate that he's been good and kind to us to celebrate that life and hope of resurrection. Because we think here at Mosaic that we need one another to do this. That we need one another to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And so if that's new to you, or it's something that you've maybe just started, we would love to walk that journey with you and to have that conversation, and we need you to help us to do it better, because no one's got it figured out, no one's ascended, no one's made it there, and so we think collectively as a community, we're going to pursue this way of Jesus and this way of existing and being. Now some of us have been doing it longer in our further life stages, and we might have some wisdom to offer, but we need one another. If you want to talk about baptism and what it looks like to be laid to death in the old way if this idea of like still living in the old resonates with you and you say hey i want to i want to lay that down and i want to be raised a new holy in a new creation in jesus we'd love to do that we'd love to baptize you and to walk that journey with you but as the band plays reflect pray respond in the way that the lord leads you and allow the holy spirit in this moment to welcome you and to just allow yourself to be caught up in this vision and hope of the new reality of seeing heaven here and now. In Jesus' name.